Welcome to episode nine of season nine of Live in the Feast. I'm Jason, AKA Rez, helping you grow your business by having a conversation with someone who's been there, had success, and built a business designed around the life that they want to live. That's Live in the Feast. This is a super special milestone event as it's the 100th episode of this podcast we all know and love called Live in the Feast. If this happens to be your first time listening, hit that subscribe button so that you do get notified every time a brand new episode drops. Live in the Feast is in your podcast app of choice. And if you've heard this show before, go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or drop us a comment in Breaker or CastBox. It helps other people just like you find the show. As this season is titled Building a Better and More Profitable Business, it's all about leveling up so that we create a more profitable and sustainable business. And as you've heard me say before, I think in this time period that we are living in, it's so important to be able to learn from one another any way that we can. So today's show is a little different. I'm the guest today. My good friend, Matt Medeiros, host of the Matt Report podcast, as well as the We Are Here Southcoast.fm podcast and the director of podcaster success at Castos is the one that's going to be running the show today. But before we get into it here, I just want to take a moment and thank you so much for supporting the show. If you're a guest or a listener, I truly appreciate you, your time, and your energy. I'm humbled to be in your ears, sharing experiences, asking questions, and hopefully getting you answers that you have to help you grow your business and build the life that you want. When I started this show, I had no idea that it would get to episode 100. But what I wanted to have was a show that was educational, entertaining, and most of all, actionable. Now, Education and actionable, I know that that's true, entertaining at times, but getting your emails, comments, reviews, and seeing what you take away and implement from the shows is what inspires me to keep going on this journey. As an introvert, reaching out and doing a podcast is way out of my comfort zone, but the relationships that I've made with fellow co-hosts and people listening to the show has enriched my life in ways I could have never imagined. I truly thank you for this. Now, enough of all of that mushy stuff. Matt really digs into the story of Rez, quote unquote, with a lot of the major decisions in my business and life over the years, all the bumps in the road and everything that led up to today. So let's get into the show. Are you feeling like you're in a silo all by yourself with no one to bounce ideas off of? Are you looking to get predictable revenue into your service-based business? Do you want better clients who respect you? Well, gain the support from like-minded developers, designers, and other creative professionals providing client services inside a Feast Club. Forget those stale articles from 2008 giving you advice on how to run your business. It's 2021. Join Feast Club today and get access to a community, including myself, where we share what we're working on in real time, strategies and resources that work in today's market, and ideas and support for one another in a safe place. You'll get access to a private podcast, which has bonus episodes from some of the guests in this season that you can only get inside a Feast Club. You'll also get access to a monthly one-hour virtual meetup, a private Slack and Circle community, member-only content library, access to message yours truly directly. Also, you're going to get exclusive expert workshops from folks like Kaylee Moore on pricing, Robin Kennedy on email, and Nick Gulig on sales, and so many more. There is no better time than right now to learn from those a few steps ahead of you and leverage your skills to help and support others to grow all of our businesses together. So if you want to check it out and join a community that's built on the saying, a rising tide raises all boats, head on over to feastclub.co today. 
I hope to see you on the inside of the club. Now, let's get back to the show. Welcome, Feasters. This is a pleasure. This is the 100th episode, and I'm doing something a little special here, and and Matt's going to take the reins and be the host of the show. I've known Matt for a long, long time. He's a seasoned podcast host himself, and so I'm excited for this. Um, He's going to ask me some questions, tough, easy, everything in between, whatever he he decides, and we're going to have some fun with it. So um, without further ado, Matt. Welcome. This is probably the worst idea you've ever had. <laughs> Let's just start with that. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Actually, it's going to go down in flames. Actually, <laughs> actually, this idea came out of, interestingly enough, Troy Dean had me on his show. And I was like, guest 80 or whatever, episode 80 or whatever, something like that. And then he invited me back on to do his hundredth. So I kind of always had it in the back of my head to like, hey, maybe I can find a, someone to host my hundredth. So uh, yeah, I'm glad you picked me and, and not Troy. So I do appreciate <laughs> that. Um, <clears throat> look, I mean, I think obviously hitting a hundred episodes or a hundred blog posts or a hundred tweets, uh, whatever, hundred videos on YouTube is uh, a testament to somebody who is has not given up. And I think that that is one of the most critical skills or, or just things that, that entrepreneurs do. And I applaud you for sticking around. And I think that is something that people should value in, in your efforts, right? It's so difficult to illustrate, you know, that not giving up factor to people. It's not sexy. You know, when people, and I'm sure you get this in, in your audience and the people listening to this, like, what's the magic bullet? What's the blueprint? What's the, the, what's the downloadable PDF you can give me to achieve success? And, and maybe even people looking just like, hey, give me the, the lines of, in the road. Give me that outline so that I don't veer off course. A lot of it is veering off course, coming back, veering off again, right? It's, you know, and, and, but it's sticking with it. And I applaud you for, for hitting the century mark you know, with a podcast and, and, and sticking through with your business. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Look, you know, it is it is showing up. It is just grinding it out. It's figuring your way. Like what I started at episode one, and I listened back to that. It was not too long ago. I was like, man, that's terrible, <laughs> right? And so you learn a little bit and you learn where your flaws are, where your, where your strengths are, those sort of things. And so I kind of just tried to lean on the strengths more and figure out how to overcome the flaws and... It's just about showing up and finding the right rhythm with everything. I mean, whether it's podcast, whether it's YouTube, whether it's the business, uh, things like that. Like um, Alex McClafferty told me a while ago was, hey, you have your own personal goals for your life, for your family, personal goals. Let the business and anything that you do in the business back into that. So those words always resonated with me. So um, Century and here's to... uh, looking to the next hundred. Maybe. Here's to another three, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, at least. Yeah. Um, I want to go right into, before we started recording, you said that you ask a lot of folks like what your defining moment is. What was the biggest defining moment? Yes. But where was the part where you were really questioning yourself? Like, I don't know if what I'm doing today is going to work, you know, for tomorrow and for the next year. Do you remember a point in your career, in the, the brand that you were building, you've gone through a lot of different iterations of, of your branding. What was that moment? You know, give us that, illustrate that moment where it was just like, man, this is tough. I don't think I'm going to continue. And then what really clicked to, to keep you carrying on? Yeah, I've shared this on podcasts before, but the one part of this that I have yet to share is I was in my apartment I was looking down at my kitchen counter and there was bills on it and there was the rent bill and there was a cable bill. And I was faced with the decision to say which one is getting paid because both obviously very important. <laughs> cable allowed me to run the business. Rent allowed me to have a roof over my head. But this was in 2012 and a month prior to that, I had asked my then girlfriend to marry me. 
And this was a point in time where I said to myself, even though I, the, the question in my mind, which bill am I paying here? It was more, I can't let Joanna go through this. And there's no way that I can do that just for the rest of my life. And for me, that was a, a moment of anxiety and uncertainty that I hadn't felt ever before because this was 2012. And so I knew so early on pre-internet that I didn't want to work for somebody else. Like I didn't want to wake up in the morning and dread going to work. I didn't want to ask for permission to take a day off if I wanted one. I wanted the freedom to do these things. But yet here I was faced with the easy decision in my head was to say, I'm going to get a full-time job because I don't want this person that I just asked to spend the rest of my life with to suffer these sort of things. Now, I had faced those things prior to that and just plow through it. Like, oh, I'll just go get another client. I'll work overnight, whatever. You know, like I just plow through it. But for me, it was like a, a fork in the road where it was an easy decision to go down and say, get a full-time job. And so when I talked to her about this, now she's the one that wants to know everything's paid. She wants to, she pays all the bills in advance, right? Like she doesn't let the, the due date come, all of this stuff. I told her, I said, look, I'm going to go back and get a job. You know, I can't, I can't have you go through these same things that I'm going through. And she totally 180'd me and I could read her like a book and I didn't expect this at all. And she said, well, but that's not what you want. And if I know that, then you certainly know that. And I was floored and I was just yeah. like, what? Like how, how long into your freelance career was that at that point? This was just about two years into it for the second time. So I started in the, for the first time I went uh, 13 months and this was in the early 2000s when the whole dot-com startup thing collapsed in and on itself. And I was working for essentially a body shop. It was a consultant firm, but they just farmed us out to every dot-com that was willing to pay for developers, right? So I wound up getting laid off and I was like, hey, I got a skill and I'm going to do this thing. Well, 13 months later, I wound up getting a job. But this time I had quit and I was like, I'm done. I'm staying out for good. I'm doing this thing. I figured it out. I learned the things that I messed up on the last time. But this one, and for me, it was like, what's with this two-year mark? Why do I keep hitting this wall? And so that was a point in time where I just kind of had to say to myself, like, I want this personal life with this person. And I don't want this weight on her shoulders that... I've had this and kind of just push through it and I figure it out and move on to the next thing. So, but it was such, it was a weird kind of place for my brain because it was like this, it was almost an easy choice. I was giving up something that I had quote unquote planned for the last 20 ish years, almost 20 years at that point in time. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess I'm giving it up. Hindsight being 2020, I know from myself, when I look back at the critical moments, you know, being faced with a challenge, being faced with giving up, looking back at things and say, man, if I just kept going, it would have been 10 times bigger than what it, than what it was. Now, now that you can look back at it, are there moments in that or are there pieces you can pull out of that moment where you're like, you know what? I see what I was doing wrong there. <laughs> I wasn't charging enough. I wasn't organized enough. I just wasn't marketing enough. Do you remember the points that you could have really improved to not get yourself into that stress mode that you felt looking down at the bills? Yeah. I mean, as a result of that conversation with her, I was just like, well, I got to figure this out and I can't keep doing this. So I, whatever I'm doing isn't working. <laughs> so let me try to figure it out. And I'm a data geek and I'm a numbers guy and whatever you want to call it. So I kind of just took a step back and like analyzed the business, right? Like, what am I doing? And the biggest thing was that I was a generalist, right? Like I was doing Ruby on Rails projects. I was doing Java projects. I was doing custom PHP work. And that was over nine months. And then I would go back to Ruby on Rails projects and then go back to Java projects and go back to PHP projects. And so I was just constantly chasing my tail. And that was the biggest thing for me because it was like, yeah, I heard heard plenty of times before that over those two years, like you got a niche down, you know, lawyers, doctors, everybody like has that specialty. 
But I was just like, look, people are willing to pay me to write code and I can write all this code. So why not do it? Right. And so I was never looked at as that go-to person. I was looked at more of like a pair of hands on a keyboard. And that was the biggest, biggest mindset shift that I had to make. Yeah. And where did you start with that? So I know a lot of people, you know, myself included, we, and, and you too, you've like, you've heard this advice over time. You hear that people say, okay, you should be a specialist, not a generalist. But where do you balance that? I feel like a lot of people say, okay, I need to be a specialist, but then they go heads down trying to like get better at something like, I don't know what, better at Ruby on Rails or better at PHP or better at WordPress. And they spend a lot of time focusing on fine tuning their, their skill set. But then there's the other half of it. It's like, okay, but also to become a specialist, I need to only surround myself with customers that are in this specialist realm. Like, where did you find that balance or maybe illustrate how long it took you to find, you know, that balance where it's like, okay, I can specialize in my skill set, but now I actually have to speak that language to find people to hire me. Where did, how did you crisscross that? Yeah, I went straight to the customers, right? So I looked at who I was already, who was paying me and what their needs were. And you know, as a Ruby on Rails guy, and I, I love that language and all that stuff. But at the same time, the clients that I was working with at that time wanted WordPress. They were on WordPress. They wanted new features. E-commerce, this was pre-WooCommerce being taken, right? Or being acquired or whatever. So I loved e-commerce. And because I saw at that time momentum of WordPress, it was a pretty small percentage of my client base at the time. However, I was building custom CRMs in Ruby on Rails. I was building custom CRMs, uh, not CRMs, uh, CMSs in Ruby on Rails and PHP. And like the needs of my customers were all the same. And for the vast majority of them, they didn't care what sat behind. They didn't care what whether I was writing Ruby, whether I was writing PHP, or whether it was a framework like WordPress. So I said, well, let me dive in on WordPress because there's a huge market out there. I can stand out a little bit more because I flock towards e-commerce where a lot of developers, they didn't want to deal with that. And so I just said, the customers want this. Let me go there. And let me see what that is. And that's kind of where we met at that point in time, because I was like, how do I, how do I start speaking that language? Who are the developers that I need to actually pay attention to in this space that are actually sort of creating waves and so on and so forth. And I'd listened to podcasts and you had the WordPress podcast at the time, right? Like that was it, like the Matt report. And so for me, it was like, okay, then I found basically a roster of developers off of your podcast. And so I started following them and having conversations with those folks. And, and so I, it kind of just snowballed after that. Like it was like, Hey, what does the customer need? And is it something that I can do? Right. And, and enjoy doing. Do you feel, do you still have the same feeling of anxiety at that point in your career uh, you know, however long that was after that moment in time at the kitchen counter, six months, a year, like, do you still feel anxiety, even though you're, you're getting focused? Is there that trailing feeling of anxiety still following you? And if so, how are you course correcting to say, I know it's there, but I'm convincing myself that I'm going into a better direction? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I still had subcontract work. I was doing a lot of work for agencies really just overflow work and hourly work and that sort of thing. And so while there was this, hey, I got 10, 12 hours a day's worth of work, writing lines of code for per hour work, I was like, I need, still need to go that way, right? And so how can I go that way, still do what I can and kind of tread water there and get to a point where these people that I'm treading water on say, bye-bye, right? <laughs> and so... For me, that was a hard thing to learn because it was conversations that I wasn't, I hadn't had previously. And so I had stumbled upon Curtis McHale's blog and he had this blog article on saying no. And it was basically just giving me permission to say what I was thinking. I was like, oh, other people are doing this. And so I can do this too. And so 
you had right at the same time. And what's ironic about all of this is, is that like, as I think back and reflect on all of this, timing is like <laughs> weird, right? Because at the same time, you had opened up sort of like a mentor mentee kind of website and matched me up with another developer through that website. And I started talking to him and he was just like, dude, you got to do X, Y, and Z, double your rates, get rid of the dead weight and only look at profits. And I was like, okay, sounds simple, <laughs> it's so obvious, right? <laughs> right? But I mean, what happened was, was I was getting validation that I was undercharging. I had bad fit clients. I hate the term bad clients because they're not bad people. It's just not a good fit. Right? But he was essentially saying, like, I was getting advice from a developer who had a company, was running a company in WordPress and so on and so forth. And he, he was like, dude, what you're doing, you're double whatever you're charging. Like, and if they don't want it, go find somebody that does. Right. And so for me, getting that mentor or that coach is something that I always reflect on. And anytime throughout my career since, when I try to want to learn or fill a gap or accelerate learning, I go try to seek out somebody that has done it or on the path that I'm on, but they're a few steps ahead of me, whatever it is, because they've been down that road and they paved that road. So why not learn from them? What's your process for what I'll say is, you know, I, I, I like to picture a commercial fishing boat and you throw out, you cast this huge net and you bring in all this fish and then, you know, there's laws. So you can't keep them all and you have to find the ones that are the right size. And that's the way I think about experimenting with new ideas, figuring out like which direction, you know, you should go in. And even before I get into this question, I would like to say that that fear, the anxiety, is this the right thing? Am I headed in the right direction? I feel never goes away. I feel it doesn't go away even now that I, I've spent four-ish years out of my own agency and in a full-time job. Like I'm constantly thinking, you know, in this moment, like I have a, a great salary and it's just like, it could go away. So like the entrepreneur in me is always thinking, what will I do next, right? It never goes away. And, and I think when you, to solve that is you have to understand it first. Like you have to know that this is something that will always be fluid. You should always in the back of your mind, like that 10, 15%, uh, leave 10, 15% overhead to be like, okay, if something ever changes, I, I think I know I can go in this direction. So how do you cast that net continuously and, and capture that potential 10 to 15%? You're not chasing it. You're not turning it into a product just yet, but you're always thinking about it. What's your process to like always keep those little things on the back burner just in case? Yeah. Well, first of all, you, you couldn't have described more of a New Englander type of scenario there, right? But yeah, I mean, so one of the things that it's something that maybe is just a part of who I am, it's like self-awareness. And for me, look, I could always just go get a full-time job, right? And so like, if this whole thing falls out tomorrow, go to Luana ads or whatever the thing is these days, right? And get a job. Or because of the network and the relationships that I've built in over time throughout my career, if there's a handful of people that ping me at least once a year to say, hey, are you sure you don't want a coding gig, right? Like they want to bring me on. So there's these fallback safety nets, if you will, right? And that's really just all about the networking thing. However, I've pivoted a few times and I've pivoted more from the perspective of what interests me, but also trying to see where a trend could be going from the marketplace, right? And so, you know, I coded WordPress, WooCommerce, basically subscription websites. So I, I had niched myself down pretty, pretty hard on a plugin, on a plugin, on a framework of PHP, right? So for me, I saw that people were just, hey, I want to build a membership site or I want to build a subscription box site, right? Like all of these things. And I saw that trend coming. So I, was, I did that, right? I developed that. However, then six, probably closer to seven years ago, I started to see that you could tie in a lot of email marketing stuff. And I wasn't a writer, so I was never really attracted to email at all. 
but the whole programming and the marketing and the automation side of things always interested me. And Drip came along. Like it was always Infusionsoft back then. And I logged into there a few times and I never wanted to do that again. However, Drip was much more coder friendly, if you will, from the API perspective. And so a couple of clients were open to using that. And so I said, oh, well, okay, maybe there's something here and tying all that stuff together. Now I didn't go down that road 110%, but it was something that I kind of said, you know, the, took the page out of Google and said, hey, like 20% of my time, I'd like to try to experiment on this sort of thing and see where that kind of takes me. Um, and that's every time I've pivoted and pivoted in a way where, you know, like now I'm on ConvertKit, I still have Drip customers, right? I still have WooCommerce customers, you know, those sort of things, but I'm really focused in on the ConvertKit side of things from a public perspective. It doesn't mean that I don't get active campaign. I don't get drip. I don't get all of these other folks coming to me. It's just who I want to really attract are the ConvertKit folks. Now, I don't dive in to that statement till I see enough of a profit or enough of a, of a runway where it says, okay, let me plant my flag in this, right? So, you know, ConvertKit side of things, it was probably nine to 12 months before I said, hey, I'm doing this thing, right? And so, you know, Nurture Kit, which is now my services arm, it, everything was always onto res.com. However, the services arm of the business, the website never drove any traffic to that, right? Like it was always just word of mouth or my marketing or something like that that drove the customers. So I spun Nurture Kit off just this year. And I'm a decade into my services, right? So. But you were investing in your brand and marketing for res.com. You were still, you know, you were doing designs, you were, you know, redesigning the site. Uh, you know, when you launched, relaunched it, I was like, damn, that's a, uh, this is many years ago, but when you did the, the big relaunch with our mutual uh, designer friend, I was looking at it, I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Like he gets it, he understands it. But am I hearing this right? That it didn't actually drive, it didn't drive traffic. It wasn't a traffic source, but potentially it was building up trust with a potential customer that, that talked to you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, look, did you get scared at the first, like I just spent a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. There was, I mean, because the thing was, I was just like, I'll just, in, like, I'm, I'm not a designer. I know what looks good. I'll install a theme. I'll tweak it, do whatever I need to do to get it up and running. But I looked like everybody else. And there was no brand per se. There was no personality. There was nothing there that actually kind of was me right? That identified as me. Um, and when I hired Megan to do the brand, and this was back in 2014, to this day, I still use the logo. I use the colors. I use all of that stuff. I've just recently refreshed that because in and of itself, the, the site, I refreshed the site rather than the whole entire brand, but the site itself wasn't working for where I wanted to take it over the next you know several years. But the brand in and of itself, <laughs> I was like, I saw the contract and, you know, she told me how much it was going to be and all that stuff. I said, all right, sure, let's go. It was the biggest investment that I had in my business at the time. And yeah, it was scary because I, what I, I'm such a control freak, right? I just said, look, you have creative freedom. The only thing that's staying the same is res, the word, right? Like that is it. And that's that design wise, colors, all the rest of it. And she put me through the process of whatever she does to do the branding. And she was awesome with it. She would ask me tons of questions. We never even got into colors or any of that sort of stuff. She was just trying to figure out who I was and the type of business and the type of clients that I attract. And she built that brand and, you know, stickers came out of it, mugs and all the rest of it and t-shirts and things like that. And so it was scary, but I let go of something that I wasn't good at. It was a flaw of mine. What I was doing in the past wasn't serving me. But this now, I mean, for the longest time, people are like, yeah, I always recognize when I see that red, right? Like it's yours, right? And it's for a long time when I publish something, even just automated way on a tweet, they're like, hey, when I see those kind of old tech grunge type photos, I know that's a, a res blog post, right? And so that brand now holds true. I think there's, uh, speaking about, because I know specifically I asked that question specifically because, I mean, I know as, as a business owner, even to this day with sort of my side hustle projects and things like that and, and reinvesting into my podcast and branding, 
look, there's an, there's an undercurrent. We, we don't have the luxuries as freelancers, entrepreneurs, small business owners. I don't care if you're a, like my agency, if you're a dozen people, there's an undercurrent here that we're looking for every dollar we spend, we're looking for at least a dollar 25 back, right? Like at minimum. And that's a super, that's a challenge, right? And I think in the world that we're in, it doesn't matter if you're developing a website, you know, if you're helping people like launch podcasts and you're on the sort of the marketing side of your brain and you're consulting that way, we're also dealing with other people who are, have those same expectations, right? So it, it, it's a constant challenge, right? I, I think of like, uh, not that I'm a nuclear physicist, right? But I think of the fission, right? Of like atoms and molecules just like constantly going at each other until they explode. That's the bulk of the world that a lot of us either still live in today or we grow up in, in our freelancer life, you know, until you start like seeing what big money does, like enterprises, large businesses, where they're like, yeah, 50 grand to try something, no problem. <laughs> you know, right. and it's just yeah, like, yeah. wait a minute, <laughs> can I get a little piece of that to try this thing over here? And, and especially in brand and advertising, and I know you have a lot of experience, both you, I believe, and your wife in advertising and ads and stuff like that. So, you know, like, yeah, if you're talking about advertising, it's not just, you know, one time I try this Facebook ad, it's never going to work, right? You need to have money to execute advertising and branding properly or invest in it and just, you know, just suck it up for this one big bulk of time where you're just like, oh my God, I'm about to drop X amount of thousands of dollars on this branding thing. But look, it's carried you now for many years, right? So you make that initial leap. It was a big thing, like in 2014. And I, you know, 2014, I had a wedding to pay for. And so yeah, I was like, and you're, uh, you're in New York, right? So it's, right, it's like, yeah, you, you're not it. messing around. Yeah. <laughs> you mess my around. wife's Italian, right? Yeah, so yeah, like, forget, forget it. it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so for me, it was like, even though she told me over the phone, I said, look, you know, I, I'm client services. Just tell me how long it's going to take. Tell me what the investment is. I just want to know. I don't want to waste your time, that kind of thing. And so even though she told me what it was going to be, and then I got the proposal, even the proposal gave me a little kind of like a skipping a beat, right? Because at that time I had never, I mean, it was magnitudes more than I had ever spent on the business ever. But as you said, that was six years ago, you know, almost seven years ago. And so that brand has such a small percentage of what that brand has brought in and allowed me to do for my own life. And so when I did the refresh, Right? And I hired Rafal Tamal for it. And it, yeah, he gave me a quote. I was just like, okay, it is what it is. But this is what I needed to do. And now the website is doing what I needed to do. It's flexible. It's able to, to do a lot of things that I had said. I said, while I gave him creative freedom, I said, the colors have to remain. The logo has to remain. Maybe the fonts. I'm interested in hearing your you know take on those sort of things. So I kind of gave him a little bit of constraint to keep the brand there, but overall, a lot of the things changed. So, you know, once you do it the first time, it's easier the second, third, fourth, right? It's like practice, but it definitely is something where that first time, if you're apprehensive on it, find that person. I, I had spoke to you about Megan, you know, I knew of Megan, just her work and things like that. Same with Rafal. I've known Rafal for a long, long time. So a lot of these things for me is also about the people. You know, it's not just something that I Googled and say, hey, who could give me a brand design, right? Like I wanted to actually understand and know that this person could do the, the work that they said. So yeah, it's it's scary. But you did you do. raise your did you raise your prices after that investment? <laughs> yes. Well, I had to raise it before because I had to give it yeah. the deposit, right? So right. no, but I mean, in, in all honesty, though, the, you are looked at more professionally when you have something that's cohesive that looks like it was professionally done, right? Like before, it was my site looked like a developer designed the site, right? Like I don't care, it is what it is. It's form fields and Times New Roman and blue links, right? So. For me, that's, that's the big takeaway was letting go of those things that I'm not good at and letting those experts come in. At this point now, so let's say you, you invest in the brand, you get the new website, you get the new logo and everything. We'll, we'll talk about, let's say, a year after. Is it roughly about a year after that moment, that investment, 
the experiences that you've had. I, I assume that now that you've been selling WordPress sites, you're you're in jousting matches that are quite cutthroat. You have the people who are saying, hey, I only want to spend 500 bucks. Then you're finding the people who are, you know, hey, I'll spend the 5,000 bucks. Does it take you roughly a year? I'm just guesstimating until where you actually build the confidence to walk into a, a sales conversation and say, my minimum is 10 grand. Here's why this is what I've got. Like, Paint the picture of how long it took you to really get to a point of being able to say no to people and just walking in with like, this is the, va- this is the price, right? I'm not huge on like value-based selling, but like the idea of saying, this is what I'm worth. This is what the engagement's worth. And here's what you're getting for it. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, we have to move on. You know, like I'm, just, I'm not the person for you. And maybe here's some other people. Like at what point and how long did it take you to get to that? Yeah. One of the things that I had saw a lot of when I met Drew, right. And we had a couple of phone calls was, do you put your prices online or do you not? And why would you, right? For me, I was like, well, what didn't work before I didn't have my prices online. Maybe I should put the prices online. Right. And so that was the big first hurdle for me. And I was just like, look, I don't, whatever. I'm not getting like the New York Mets pounding down my door. So I have hair salons and I have local restaurants and like those sort of projects. If somebody's not willing to pay me at that time, I think it was like 1500 for just a theme developed or whatever. If somebody looks at 1500 and says, ah, that's too much money, then I don't want to waste time. I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste my time. So, okay, good. I'm deterring the people that I don't want to talk to. And this was one of the things that I had learned after the first time that I quote unquote failed after the early 2000s, because the thing that I felt strongly that I lacked was marketing and sales. So over close to a decade in there, I buddied up with salespeople. I buddied up with marketing people, especially in boutique agencies that I worked at to kind of like learn a little bit of what they're doing. How do they approach sales? You know, like it was awkward for me. I'm not somebody that's going to pick up a phone and cold call people, but iterating over time to kind of just say, look, I don't want to waste time in my own head. Like the compass always has been the time, freedom and flexibility, right? So if I want to spend my time going outside, traveling, whenever we can do that again, but like, you know, all of these things, I want the time freedom. So if it comes down to a question of, yes, is this going to take a lot of time away from the other thing? And it doesn't really fit like in my gut, it doesn't feel good. I'm just going to pass on. And I'm going to just say, Hey, look, there's either more cost-effective ways, you know, if price is a problem or if timing is an issue where I'm booked up and somebody else, you know, like that might have some bandwidth. I, I refer people out that way, things like that. I always try to make some logical next step for that person on the other side of the table, because I don't want to waste their time. I want them to leave in a better place than when they came to me. So if it's with me or not, there's going to be some resolution there. And so with the mindset of knowing where I wanted to be and knowing where I wanted the person on the other side of the table to be, those two things together gave me the confidence to kind of say, yes, no, maybe this might be an option. But also knowing that there was always another project coming. Like that wasn't the last time I was ever going to get a project. Yeah. I mean, for me, and I'm sure you found the same thing and, and maybe you even coach this in, in your program and, and, and with other people that you talk to. And there's something that goes under the radar. When you start to raise your prices and you start to get a, I don't know, a higher degree of client and somebody who is, they understand digital, they understand web, they just need somebody to do it and execute it against their strategy. What happens is, is you get on the other side of the fence and you start to learn how these types of organizations or brands purchase, how they think, how they communicate with one another. What does you know, legal look like for them, which is like a huge thing, which it's a whole other barrier. You know, once you start to raise your prices, you're getting a higher degree of customers. Maybe it's some of the things I just said, but I'm curious, like, what did you learn once you got on the other side of the table? Once you get into that conference room, quote unquote, to pitch these people, what was a big takeaway 
for you once you started to raise those prices? Aside from just like, hey, it's bigger projects, it's more complex code, it's bigger designs or whatever. What was something on the other side that you didn't expect to be learning that you did? Yeah, to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the biggest thing, right? Like listen to what they're saying and pay close, close attention to it. Meaning sometimes you have to read between the lines to figure out what's important. Even just being perceptive of the room around them. We're virtual, right? But we're both in our you know, house or whatever, right? And so if you can see what goes on behind them, they have family pictures. Okay. Then family might be important. Maybe they just want some time back in their day or not work on the weekends, right? Just being perceptive of the world around you and taking note on that, as well as just hearing what they're saying and trying to dive deeper into what that root cause is, right? And so for me, going in as a developer, take a step back. I had a director of development at Cablevision at the time uh, say to me once, he goes, dude, you're like a unique snowflake, okay? And this was fresh out of college. And he goes, because you can talk the geek with the geeks and you can sit there and listen to the business folks and actually interpret what they say to the geeks. And so when I go ahead and think about that, especially if I'm not talking to, if I'm talking to like a founder or CEO or maybe somebody in marketing, things like that, I know to say, I'm just going to shut up for a minute, even though that what they're saying I could probably just say, hey, it's going to cost this. It's going to be X lines of code, or it's going to be, let's configure this or build that or whatever. I just keep quiet for a little while. Let them talk. Let me understand why it is that they're actually here having this conversation with me. And that is revealing in a way where then all you have to do is echo that back in a proposal or in a statement or a handshake, whatever, right? And get that to a point where there's a signature and a price tag to it. Because once you understand what your solution is, okay, it could be $2,000, it could be $20,000, it could be $200,000. But what is that value to that person on the other side of the table? You bring all your experience, you bring the years, the, you know, the projects, the, the ins and outs of everything that you know over the course of time could be, you know, and it's so cliche in the developer space. Like I could write three lines of code. How can I charge a hundred grand for that? Well, if your three lines of code brings them in a million dollars a year, you could charge a hundred grand for that. And so that, that for me was one of those kind of like turning points when I started to up level who I was talking to was to not talk as much and just let them talk. Yeah. Which is like the kiss of death, especially in the WordPress space. You know, you know, and maybe other people listening to this know, I mean, there's a million plugins that do everything. And, you know, it's, you can oftentimes get into, especially in, if you're unseasoned in, in sales and, and negotiations and things like that, where you get into a room and you're so excited to, I don't know, whatever, work with a brand. Maybe it is a big project. So you're super excited. And then they bring up something like, I don't know, like, uh, oh, we're going to be the first on Google, right? When, when whoever searches for this thing, at uh, our website, it's just going to appear on Google. And you're just like, yeah, we just installed a plugin. <laughs> we installed Yoast and there, and there you go. There is like a million miles of things that has to happen. But you see this like this one piece and you're just like, oh, and they, oh, we want to sell hats. Yeah, no problem. WooCommerce, I'll throw that on. I'll throw that on there and you'll be good, right? It's so far from the, from the truth. One of the lessons that I learned is it's you have this one side of the house where it's, you know, the development, the design, the strategy, and then there's the, the delivery of it and the support in the maintenance and who's going to be using this thing that you're building for them that gets so often overlooked in scoping a project. I mean, how many times have you been in the room? It's like, yeah, gravity forms will do that. And then it's just like, yeah, you just build a gravity form. You're off, you're off to the races and just have all your, you know, your sales, salespeople build a gravity form every time they want to do this lead generation thing. And you're like, they cannot figure out gravity forms, <laughs> right? In your mind, you're like, this is the easiest thing ever. And their mind is like, what is this that you just gave me? And being able to see that, you know, I hate to go back to the answer of everything being father time, but you go back and like, these are the things that you don't learn right out of the gate. And you always have to be aware of, you know, when you're launching, you know, projects for people. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it goes back to what I was saying about pivoting 
right? And really trying to figure out where my business is, is headed in the next stage of its life, whatever it is, right? You know, I mean, I went from a generalist coder doing every language underneath the sun to WordPress. At that time, I decided WordPress and WooCommerce was going to be it. Then I went further down that road to subscriptions and, and the company of Prosperous and, and that sort of thing. Then I shifted towards Drip and now ConvertKit, right? Each one of those things, it was solving a problem that I saw in the market that, like you said, people struggle with, right? Drip, they were acquired by lead pages. And while people like us were using it, in creator fashion, blogging, selling things online, lead pages said, hey, I'm taking this and we're gonna go right after Shopify. <laughs> like we're just eCRM now or whatever they coined that term, right? But it left a lot of people struggling like, well, what happened to all the stuff that served us well? And then support became a problem. And like, so they had their own growing pains because they were transitioning, but their customers were, left, you know, there was a good portion of customers left high and dry. So I saw that on Twitter and look, if Twitter is anything, it's good for people to bitch, right? <laughs> like, right? And they complain and they mention brands like, hey, I can't send an email, I can't do this. So I just said, I, I leaned in my strength. I set up a Zap, Zapier <laughs> recipe to ping me every time drip was mentioned in a tweet somewhere, right? And it pinged me and I posted in Slack and I jumped into the conversation and addressed their issue if I could, right? Maybe link them to a thing or whatever, right? And then Drip would come in 24 hours later or whatever and kind of add to that. But at the same time, I was already there. They had already solved their problem, right? And so I was jumping ahead of the, the dome brand in that way and helping their customers. Now on the ConvertKit side of things, look, ConvertKit's maturing. They're adding features. They're, they got a new commerce thing, right? So, but their core audience are bloggers and creators and musicians and non-technical people. But ConvertKit, they are seeing what they're seeing from the perspective of email and building a business online and they're moving forward and some folks are being left behind a little bit and so they're like how do i use this new feature like i launched my course and i've tried it you know four times and i get some traction on it but i have to schedule out these broadcasts and then manage the customers coming in and then send them out a couple of emails and like all of the stuff i'm like oh as you said before i would just uh, create a visual automation and we'll just drop you into a sequence and then create an event, pull you out. Like if I just said that to them, they'd be like, uh, I don't know. Right. So I created a service around that, especially at this pandemic time, I wasn't changing anything. Like as we were talking, like the clientele that was coming into my ecosystem understood that stuff. They just didn't have the people to do it in their business. You know, they had you know, let's say 10 to 50 people in their business, but they didn't have like a, they might've had a director of marketing, but they didn't have somebody to actually do the implementation side of things and help build the strategies and things of that nature. But because of the pandemic, there were more and more people finding me about Drip and ConvertKit because people were Googling, how do I improve my side hustle, right? And how do I do that? And I wanted to help those people because I am a part of those people, right? Like I kind of figured it out my way. And I said, okay, well, I could just create a day rate service on it. Like my skills can serve them too. It just has to be a win-win all the way around. Like I can't, I can't carry on a project that's going to cost me $1,500 or $2,000 for a couple of months. It's just not going to happen. So everything that I try to do from the business perspective is to serve the customers, but also see where a trend is headed and try to cater to that in some sort of fashion. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole, you know, story arc and you're going from, you know, again, the, the kitchen counter, looking at the, the two bills that were due, deciding on which one to really just putting your head down and continuing on with services, learning through this, and then starting to just build up confidence, number one, but also build up revenue, <laughs> you know, number two, closely tied together, the book of business, 
investing in yourself and branding, but all the while you're thinking about, okay, what am I going to peel off of this to build myself that sustainable business, which is, you know, where you're at now with, with Nurture Kit. I think that this is a formula and, and this is over the course of now, what, six years, seven years, you know, maybe 10 years. If you looked at it, you, know, you looked at the whole thing. I think that, you know, a lot of people get lost in just raising rates, just charging more. I think there's something to be said about, you know, having, I hate to use the, the overused term, which is productized service. I don't really love that because <laughs> I feel like sometimes people say I will charge a lot of money for a little thing. I think the, the fine balance and what you've walked through is ba balancing the value for both people, right? We're trying to find the value in you doing the work, which is getting paid in a good profitable fashion and still delivering you know, great value for the customer on the other side of the, of the seesaw. And that's, that's a fine balance. And it, it never, you'll never have a perfect balance there. You're always trying to, you know, competitors come in, businesses change and, the, and they evolve. Sometimes they outgrow your product, I service or whatever, for whatever reason. Um, but always finding that working on that balance, I think is, is, is important. You know, what's going to be the one or two things that will, change the, the perception of a customer while giving you less stress. For example, building a website. I have absolutely no problem, and I'm sure you don't either, for anyone who says, I charge 500 bucks for a website. That's fine. And you can. And maybe in this day and age, that's a pretty cool thing to launch, right? It's a $500 website package, but it's done through a whatever, three-hour Zoom session and you deliver five educational videos with this, so the customer gets this, and you only use two WordPress templates, right? Or themes, like we only use this, it's only delivered in three hours, and it's only home about contact page and one product page. And then that's how you like deliver it to the customer, right? These things can be shaped and tweaked. Customer gets a lot of value out of it. You know, maybe 300 bucks is too low, but, or whatever I said, 500 bucks is too low, but maybe, in, you know, for somebody who's just at home COVID world, these are things that are, are super valuable. And the idea is you're supporting the customer. I think a lot of that lesson that, that you've gone through can be applied to a lot of people and hopefully they can take your 10 years, your, your decade of agony and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and reinvest it into, into them. Like, like you said, like skip ahead. Is that how you've bucketed up a lot of your interactions with, you know, with your community and, and now what you're doing with, with Nurture Kit? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I've always like one feast club, all the programs, everything to help out freelancers in and of itself. I've always said, like, once I decide not to do client services, then I can't help them anymore. It changes so fast, so quickly. If I'm not doing the thing that I'm actually helping people do, then I can't be as valuable to them in today's market, whatever today looks like, right? And so for me, that's it's always been a, a staple there. On the nurture kit side of things, yeah, I have retainer clients who show up every single week, do their work, you know, so on and so forth. However, yet that underlying tier came in where normally I would have just referred them off to somewhere else. If I could help them in a way that serves them well, serves me well, gets that win-win, then yeah, let's do it. So it was a matter of just trying to figure out that, like you said, that fine balance there. But case in point, my clients, retainer clients, they're willing to invest. Like you said, they you know, they're willing to try things. They have budgets for those sort of things. They're willing to listen, so on and so forth. Whereas the hustlers, so to speak, we want, we want that buck 25 on every buck that we invest, right? So those people, normally I would have just said, hey, look, I, I can't help you, but I know these other people who can. However, what I'm seeing is if, I, if you can serve that audience, you then see the 30% that actually take your thing that you help them do and take it to the next level. And then they become lifelong customers onto your upper tier type product. So that's been eye-opening too, because you could kind of see when people start coming back. And you know, if you have those kind of like entry level type services, like you're saying, 
I'm going to build you a four-page website, 500 bucks or a thousand bucks. And this is what it's going to look like. If it sounds good to you, let's do it. If it doesn't, okay, then you can go elsewhere. But yeah, serving, serving who it is that you want, have those values there. And if you have the values there, then stick with them for as long as it, it suits everyone involved. I want to wrap it up with uh, some of your best takeaways on, you know, you mentioned the word serving and serving the customers, but you know, and a lot of people come to, I'm sure like you and I, they come to us, they say, whatever, how do I grow my business? How do I grow my podcast, my YouTube channel, whatever? Like, how do I like just get out there and get connected? A lot of people are, again, are looking for the blueprint, the download, like, what can I just give me these steps? And if I just follow this, it will happen. I've been a huge proponent by serving the community around me, whether it's literally my local community or my virtual community online, you know, folks like yourself and others, what's your best takeaways on connecting and helping other people's other people to push your, your business forward and to, and to get your brand out there. Um, you know, I did the, the WP mentor site as a method too, because I instinctively liked helping people and myself knowing that a mentor was very powerful for me growing up in business. So that was one avenue of, of how I help people. What have you done or what are you imploring others to do uh, to connect with others? I try to talk about this as much as I can is just go answer questions without any expectation of a result, right? The only result that you want is that person to get to the next step. They're overcome their challenge, get their, send them a link, you know, and that link is the solution that they're looking for, whatever it is. Just be helpful. If you go with that mindset and you even just carve out, if somebody wants a real takeaway, carve out an hour a day and just go answer some questions in your community, whether that community is like yourself, like local community, whether it's a virtual community, YouTube channel, podcast, whatever, or just hop on your Facebook page or a community of where your clients aggregate online. Go into those groups, like if you cater to restaurants or doctors or wherever, wherever they sit online and talk about things, just do a search for a question mark and find that and post an answer. As long as it's a genuine answer that you can help them with, right? But by doing that, then that just plants a seed out there. Oh, this person's helpful. Maybe they can help me with something else and and so on and so forth, especially nowadays, like COVID. Okay, you know, there's a vaccine coming, but it's still going to be six months out before anybody even sees it. But at the same time, we don't have those places to congregate anymore, those events or conferences or seminars or even just a coffee shop, you know, depending on where you are, to be able to go do that and just have a conversation with somebody. So you kind of have to be a little bit more intentional about what you're doing from the perspective of serving that community. And if you are intentional about going out there and just saying, hey, I'm going to spend an hour in this group. And sometimes it doesn't even take that long. But if you just go ahead and answer a few questions, three, five questions, awesome. Follow up with them and, you know, you let nature take its course in, as far as networking goes. But you'll then start to see that groundswell of like this person then brings their colleague into it and say, hey, look, I don't need this help that you provide, but I was talking to somebody the other day and do you mind if I send them your way? And so that groundswell of word of mouth goes a long, long way, especially, and like I said, don't go with that expectation of doing it. But if you just go there with the expectation of just helping people, the other stuff comes. Jason Resnick, a 10-year overnight success. Uh, <laughs> thanks, for, <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, thanks for having me host uh, the uh, 100th podcast. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's great to see you here continuing. And when I say see you here, like still kicking and breathing and doing this stuff because that is the ultimate ultimate lesson. The way, again, the way I look at it, this is a game. Uh, this is something that we know that sometimes we'll be down a few scores, but we're going to go back up. Uh, and there's not a lot of rules, <laughs> which is great. Like we can do it our way, you know, as of right now in the year 2020, uh, we can still do this thing our way. And it's awesome to see, you know, what you've done, bumps, bruises, shiny websites and all. So I applaud you for being here. And it's been a pleasure to know you all of this time. Uh, and a real honor to, to be here. So I appreciate it. And congratulations on 100 and more. 
Yeah, thanks, Matt. I appreciate you uh, taking some time out and listening to my agony <laughs> over the past decade. Uh, but yeah, it's been an, it's been a pleasure knowing you as well. And podcast brought us together, and so for me, uh, podcasts are special. And uh, you know, being on the East Coast, we, there's that certain vibe that we got to, so that kinship, if you will. But before we let everyone go here, where can folks reach out? Say, hey, Matt, if they don't already listen to your show already or subscribe to your YouTube channel. Uh, MattReport.com. And uh, if you're looking for me at my day job, Castos.com uh, as director of podcaster success, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully success leads to consistency, right? Or comes from consistency. So yeah, thanks, Matt. I appreciate your time. And for everyone listening, until next time, it's your time to live in the feast. <laughs>